These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Resuming the conversation of Steamheart. Yes. I think that's enough stalling. We can Mm -hmm. return to Raven at a later point as more of his story is revealed. I want to talk about the fallout from the night before. Mm Because, man, there is some juicy stuff going on there. Returning to Rebecca, her situation is frustrating to both herself and the audience. We talked a lot about what led her to make the choice she did, the same as Harry. And just as we came to the conclusion that Harry had every right to make the selfish choice, so too did Rebecca. Indeed, Rebecca should not be held to account for the actions of another or how this is necessarily going to affect somebody else. She can only control her own choices and her own responses And what somebody else is going to do is really not her responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the one to accept her offer or not was always James. You cannot live your life worrying about consequences you can't control. Worrying about what her actions might lead to was the course that led her to losing Rafe. Her decision to sleep with James was almost needful for her to finally move on. But just as she made the right choice for herself that night, as she gains new information during the day, we can see how she decides to make the selfless choice at the end of this three-chapter arc. She understands that the Steamheart expedition affects more than her own life, and therefore plays the good soldier, so to speak, and walks back out of the story. The story of her and James perhaps to be resolved at some later date. It's showing the breadth of new experiences that the old world being upended has afforded people developing new relationships of a much broader range than they might have felt permitted to do by the all-encompassing culture and society that they felt enveloped in. That's not to say that these kinds of encounters, and more besides, didn't happen before this point, either in the fiction of New Century or in our own real-world history. It's just to say that people like Rebecca, who we have seen exactly how old socially agreed-upon terms and conditions interfered in her own happiness, are now freed from such obligations that might prevent them from pursuing something when the right moment or person comes upon them. I'm sorry. I know that you didn't necessarily mean that in the moment, but when you use the term terms and conditions, it just makes me think of that moment from Eddie Izzard. Yes, have you read the terms and conditions? (laughs) Nobody has read the terms and conditions. And they have made us liars. We cannot tell the truth anymore. You cannot reprimand your children. No, Johnny, you said you, you didn't have a biscuit, but those crumbs on your face, and you did have a biscuit. You have lied, but you said you had read the terms and conditions. When you tick that 
box. It was too quick for you to read the terms and conditions. You read it and then... The truth is, no one in this room has read the terms and conditions. No one in New York has read the terms and conditions. No one in the universe. Even God has not read the terms and conditions. That's probably the big gap between the beginning of the earth and when we fucking turned up. He was reading the terms and conditions of the thing he'd just made. You know what? What a brilliant, poignant analogy that, like, everyone has this sense that you must follow the terms and conditions that social constructs push upon you. But no one's read the terms and conditions. <laughs> Nobody understands what the bugger they mean. So, you know, have some wiggle room, for God's sake. And unlike Rebecca's old circumstances, that meant that whatever she might have pursued with Rafe would have had a permanent effect and be contained within the broader social systems of British society. She's able to have something with James, decide that she won't stay, and that is, for the most part, fine. It doesn't destroy her sister's life or have some broader social implications that will dog her for the rest of her life. The only effect she concerns herself with is the small-scale interpersonal impact of being here in Team Steam with James. And her decision has consequences, and she is aware of that. So she is still returning to the responsible thing, which means that in some ways she's still kept captive by her sense of duty. Mm. And yet there is nevertheless the feeling of just incremental gains that at the very least she was able to find it within herself to say, even if I had to let this go, I want to forge this connection. There is nothing that I feel like the world is holding me to account to to stop me from taking this man and shagging him right here and now. <laughs> Obviously, I am holding myself back. <laughs> from discussing this too much more because of the events of later books that I don't want to potentially ruin for a good portion of our listeners, given that it's going to be a while before some of the books that Alex has already written to be expressed in audio drama form, and mm -hmm. whether or not Rebecca returns and in what form, what her personal arc is going to end up being with mm. or without James. And some people read these as they read the books. Hi, Nama. In fact, one of the best parts of 2022 has been hearing more people speak up about episodes of Through the Window and our audience expanding. We've had a few comments here and there from Discord community members Nama Chaibidi, Chris Finnick, and Daft Penguin. But recently I got a DM from a previously quiet audience member, Bonsai Tree, who had been making their way through our episodes on Secret Rose. And while I considered holding on to this nugget till Toby and I could discuss it properly, I'm going to reveal the content of it now, so that Alex doesn't chew through his desk, and we'll leave a deep discussion for later. Bonsai, as it turns out, speaks German. Why does that matter? Well, as you may recall, I utterly failed to translate the unclear whispers of the ghost of Charlotte back during Secret Rose. But because Bonsai knows the language better, they were able to share exactly what was said. Der Herz und der Kumpf sind einer. 
Translated, this means, the heart and the head are one. Given the circumstances, I'm sure you can understand the implications, but Toby and I will do a full unpacking at the right time. I think it's enough to say that this is going to be the end of our discussion for Rebecca for now. And Rebecca that the great turn. <laughs> and focus more on those characters that are going to continue to be a part of this story, since Steamheart is the novel that we are focusing on at this moment. This is a long-winded way of saying that I feel like we've said all that needs to be said about Rebecca and her part in the story already. And this is just a satisfying conclusion, almost an epilogue to her experience in Let Them Go, and that's enough for now. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the situation with Harry and Abby is very complicated, and everybody sort of gets that. Honestly, even Harry understands that. She knows in the light of day, that she acted with need rather than deliberation. Mm -hmm. When she refers to the idea of their lovemaking as an invention, it's almost like she sees this outcome as something she crafted without intending to. Rather than just going to her mind palace to merely make blueprints for some new creation, as she so often does, as she did with, say, the bulletproof vest that she made for her parents, this is new ground for her, and unlike a mere object that can be deconstructed and tried again if it didn't work properly, this invention, so to speak, can, as she alludes to, talk to her. Hmm. But as those intimate moments play out, and as Abigail comes to term with what she potentially feels for Harry, it's clear that even though there might have been liquor and passion and uncontrolled emotions, this end result doesn't come with any actual regret, like what happens for Raven. I think what Harry and Abby end up feeling slash wanting in the fresh light of dawn when they wake up together and they have to decide just how long they want that to last is to let it rock for a bit, you know, in a different sense to the way that they let it rock the night before. Anyway. <laughs> they want space and time to enjoy what they've discovered between them and they also want to further discover more about each other it's an innocent enough wish and it's hard to criticize them on those terms the issue of course is that they don't necessarily have time and space to let this go wherever it goes they're on a mission after all and there's a lot riding on them getting it done effectively and quickly in light of this Annie can't help but feel on edge about all of this. Having lost a figure of national importance under her charge at the start of Arlington, and having control stripped away from her during her encounter with Seth, and with the immense weight of the responsibility of both captaining this vital mission with the superiors who entrusted it to her now being dead and unavailable for consultation, and the terrible duty of deciding the fate of Abigail and her endowment, it's little wonder that Annie is becoming increasingly fixated on control, and even more frustrated when something, or rather, someone, actively fights her on her efforts to control situations around them. And the major rub of all of this is that 
while we ourselves would consider everyone on the team to play a vital role, Abigail and Harry are both objectively essential to this venture. Abigail has the endowment, and in point of fact is the only possessor who seems to be able to do anything with it, and Harry is the undisputed best person to drive and maintain Steamheart. If they fall out, or either of them are unable to effectively do their job, then everything is fucked. And Abigail getting involved with a new romance in a stressful environment where they are crammed together is understandably infuriating for Annie, which in turn pisses off Abby as she trusts Harry and respects her enough to feel that she is able to do this kind of thing without being treated with kid gloves. Plus, she's indignant at the supposition that Abby and Harry sleeping together was the result of her not getting some mindless sex out of her system, because it suggests that Abby used Harry to get something out of her system, which, when you're just starting to feel something you're sincerely thankful for with someone who is starting to mean a great deal to you, is a really shitty thing to hear that, oh, you only did this because you needed to not boots with someone or dealing with difficult stuff from your past with your mother or trying to get back at James. Right. Cause that did feed into it. I think that that is undeniably a part of it. I think we have seen enough that we can understand that. Yeah. Abby does really see Harry as brilliant and wants to get to know her better. That's why she ends the scene of like having heard everything that, Annie is saying, you did this because of that. Abby ends the conversation by saying, here's what's going to happen. I like this girl. I'm going to spend more time with her. You're not going to try and tell me it isn't when I know it is. I actually go back and forth on who is right and who is wrong in this moment. I could even quote Bruno Gianelli from The West Wing, put a penny in the jar, and say that they're both right and they're both wrong. Annie sees this development and worries about consequences. And her worry is not entirely unfounded. Abigail, meanwhile, hears from Annie exactly what Toby just said. What you're feeling isn't real. And given the givens, that's walking right up to the line of saying that pursuing anything with Harry is just a phase. A term that has very poor connotations in the LGBTQ space. But we do know that it's not a gay relationship that actually bothers Annie. And we also know that Abby is not holding tight to Harry in pure defiance, merely wanting to be given room so that they can see for themselves if there is something there that will last. And this conflict between consequences and possibilities is one that will come up in the future. So tuck that away for later. It's a complicated situation between both of them, because you already pretty clearly outlined a lot of the stuff that's going on inside Annie's head as far as why she responds to this the way she does. And yet at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, it's a good thing that it was Annie doing the responding here, because if it was Thomas, then you absolutely have to believe that if he was actually present on this venture, things would have violently exploded at this point. And yet, at the same time, I find myself looking at this whole thing where Annie is like, 
I thought you were adult and mature last night, the Diamond Belt, and then you went and did this. Mm. And then Abigail having to respond to that, it feels like she's sort of taking pains to show Annie, I am being adult about this. There's stuff involved here that you're not aware of, and you need to get all the way up off my back about it. Okay, let me get right off of that thing there. So, you have a steam craft for me? Yes, sir, I do. Okay, okay, okay. Getting off the steam rant joke here. But you better believe we have one of these planned for after we're done covering this story. My point is, is that Abigail does exactly what Annie is sort of unspokenly asking and is responding to... Annie's own insecurity in this moment with surprising adult equanimity. Even though Annie is completely justified in worrying about what this means for the future of the Steamheart expedition, she's the one that's sort of going off a little half-cocked in this moment and being very emotional in the way that Abigail was the previous night. And again, we, I've been talking a lot about moments in the story that mirror each other. This is kind of like the table's being flipped a little bit here, where Annie has valid concerns, but she's unable to be completely diplomatic about this situation, mm. in part because of her, not just her concerns for her duty and her concerns for her orders and her concerns for Harry, that's actually an, another point of it right there, because we already know that Annie cares a great deal about Harry as a person and not just what Harry means for the expedition. Something that I realized going back when I was reviewing parts of the story for a different talking point was how in chapter 20, when it's Annie's turn to narrate part of the whole encounter with the Southern Cross, she refers to Harry in the moment as Sparks, that nickname that we were introduced to all the way back at the beginning of the book. I bring this up because we need to highlight how important Harry is to Annie, not simply as an asset or as a charge, but also as a friend. And it's not like Annie needed more reasons to care, but it does mean that on top of everything else, she didn't see this moment between Abby and Harry coming. I could be wrong, of course, but it does fit with the circumstances, that in burning the candle at both ends, some salient details escaped her. Or maybe this conclusion says more about me, given my propensity to do that, but we did have more to say about it at the time, so let's continue. Mm. We made a big point earlier about people making the wrong interpretation, in that they're thinking that Harry was potentially going to be romantically interested in James. And then all of a sudden, no, it's not that. She ends up hooking up with Abigail. Did anyone see this coming? We don't actually know because the potential subtext of Abigail and Harry being into each other, the only evidence that we've been alluding to all throughout this was indications that Harry was interested in Abigail. The implications that there might have been the reverse, you sort of have to mine a little bit deeper for that. And in the meantime, nobody else seems to have conversations with either of them outside of Tabitha, which was initiated by Harry, about whether this was going to be a thing at all. 
And so therefore, I think that maybe some of Annie's response in this moment is I have no idea how to handle this thing that has suddenly just been dropped into my lap. That's a, a separate component of her own frustration in that moment. Mm. I think that in terms of how much people would have seen us coming, as you say, it's difficult to get an accurate bead on that. It's one of those where once it becomes evident that it is either happened or happening, as people say, that there was little left to the imagination, I think that it would make sense that everyone would be like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Whether it was Annie spending the evening with Harry and Abigail at the Diamond Bell, where they were like having drinks, and mm-hmm. you know, Harry says that I just had the best night and stuff like that, and there was talk about them having conversations and things like that. Annie, who is on high alert about everything going mm. on with her surroundings, probably would be getting a sense of this and just be like, hmm, I don't know if I quite appreciate the way that this is going. But because it represents a sort of steering away from what she deemed to be like the worst judge of character that like Abigail could have done, which is to indulge in everything at the Diamond Bell, she kind of has to let it play out, even mm. if she has misapprehensions about where this might be leading. They may not have known necessarily what Harry's proclivities were based on the fact that they misjudged it at the ball. But I think after the trip with the mushrooms, they Mm. probably had a good idea of what Abigail's proclivities were. First of all, in the jokey fashion of her hitting on everyone, including Mm. Annie. And also, more seriously, the fact that James confided the story about Lucy. That is the thing, is that we only know the story about Lucy because it was put as backstory back in Mm. Secret Room's Definitive Edition. Again, these are chapters that were originally going to be in Steamheart, so they would have been mixed in in a different order had Alex continued on with his original plan. Mm. But we don't actually know how much James and Abigail might have talked with Frank and Annie about those events. They alluded to it while on the trip with Mushrooms. The only one that knows for certain what that comment about Lucy means is the audience, because we have the obvious Mm. context of that being part of a previous story. Yeah. I did read the scene as, James asks, could you turn that off, please? Because she, he was about to relay everything and he didn't want that put to record. And also the fact that Frank was saying, who's Lucy? Like, mm-hmm. feels as if that was the natural through line of that conversation to me. To me, I feel like James said that because he intended to say something next that he did not want the recording to be on for. I'm pretty sure that Toby is correct in his interpretation here. Going forwards, there's a future episode where Raven is talking with Abby about Lucy on a box tube recording. That suggests that James told Lucy's story to all three of the people present, at least, during Chapter 15. I also have to say that in spite of how emotional Annie is Mm. in that private scene, at the very least, she was diplomatic enough to not intrude upon Abigail and Harry being intimate 
as it was in progress. Because it's clear no, she didn't come in with a spray it. bottle and was yeah. like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that I was not sure of until I deep dove into this chapter was that there was a specific moment that was referring to how mm, noisy it got that made it clear that she was absolutely aware of the pairing that was going on, both of them, and therefore could have responded in the moment but chose not to chose to be more diplomatic about it even if she ends up expressing her own frustration when it actually plays out that she's sort of unable to mm. hold back you already discussed thoroughly the quagmire and the complex royal of emotions that is likely going on in annie's head that mm -hmm. i don't we don't i don't necessarily need to i did stand in front of you there i apologize but it's perfectly okay. But when I also look at that and reflect on that ending private bit of conversation that she has with Frank after having it out with Abigail, when I think about how we see her as an unimpeachable mentor figure back in secret rooms, the intervening books have shown us just how uncertain and fallible she really is mm. with just a hint of potential self-hate when she suggests that negotiating is only what she's second best at doing. It makes me look at that conversation between Annie and Frank and wonder if that whole thing where she was worried about Frank being willing to quit the military, if that was really about him. If she was wondering if she'd be able to leave behind her bloody past. Hmm. something i don't remember if we talked about this but i remember wanting to bring it up at one point is annie was raised as a quaker and there's a specific point of belief in quakerism that is very non-violent that was specifically alluded to in that uh flashback chapter with her where she's learning how to use the gun from her father and everything like that. And obviously, she would have had to leave that behind to a certain extent in order to join the military, given how good she is with firearms. That had to have played a part in everything that she did as she rose through the ranks, gained prestige and greater responsibility becoming a captain of the RSA. It might have ended up being very important to her in that she was trusted with more authority, not simply because she was a good soldier, but because it gave her more freedom to choose for herself what the right tactic was to take in the moment to try and resolve things non-violently rather than at the muzzle of a gun. Mm. When I think back on that, conversation all the way back on Elkview Road, where she says half the time it works, that she's able to talk people down from a violent situation, and half the time it doesn't, it implies that she's had to employ her weapons a lot of mm. the course of this new life of hers. Being a soldier means you have to have a willingness to employ violence to resolve a situation. And given the weight that she's carrying around with the horrible idea that she might have to resolve 
the Abigail situation with her gun. It just feels like there must be a huge cognitive dissonance with the values that she grew up with and wants to hold fast to because it's the memory of simpler life Mm. and the responsibilities that she agreed to uphold out of the desire to protect life in general, to build something better out of the ashes that American society has been brought to as a result of the Wendigo. I keep coming back to the idea of what is the tension within each member of Team Steam. Mm. And with Annie, it's that tension between wanting to carry part of her past, namely her connection with her family, with her, and also having to, by necessity, forget and leave some of who she was before behind. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's other tensions besides, but the biggest one, I think, is that she has made important promises that she has to continually ask if she needs to break them. Whether it's the set of principles involved in her belief system as her Quaker upbringing, that she has had to break those set of values, those sort of set of general promises that she makes to herself and her set of beliefs. And she has to question all the time because of this responsibility that Thomas put at her feet, whether she is going to break her promise to Catherine in Mm. the worst way possible. It's not even about her through inaction leading to Abigail's or James's death. It's her having to ask whether she is going to actively make the call Mm -hmm. that Abigail is running counter to her duty and she has to make that call to break that promise to Catherine. In light of all of that, in light of all these promises that she's made to other people, whether it's to her upbringing, to her family, to her parents, to Catherine to Thomas as a soldier. All of this stuff is feeding into what you're tapping into here, which I agree with, which is that there's an element of increasing uncertainty, not only in the world around Annie that confronts her with destabilizing new developments, but uncertainty of the self as well. She's questioning who she is and questioning who she will be. When Abby asks her what does she want to be after all this, she wants to envision the peaceful, retired life. Mm. But she's not sure if that's a realistic reflection of who she is, because she keeps having to compromise a version of who she is when she's asked to be so much, whether it's this negotiator or a sharpshooter or a supervisor, or Miss America, Annie Oakley, sure shot. A lot of them run counter to one another, and she has to kind of be all of them at once. But because of that, she has to wonder if she is none of them at all. I did not want to interrupt the flow of Toby's words, as he was laying out this involved response to my musing about how faith affects the choices Annie makes. As Toby laid out the promises that Annie made to others, I noticed that he avoided saying overtly that she made a promise to God. 
I then had to get another penny for the jar, reminded of a scene between President Bartlett and his wife in Season 2 of The West Wing. She is confronting him about the deal he made about only being president for one term, in exchange for keeping secret the fact that he has multiple sclerosis. If he runs for a second term, he might end up having to deal with serious consequences in office if the MS relapses. And their conversation ends on these words. I don't know if it's going to get better. I don't know if it's going to get worse. But we had a deal. And that deal was how you justified keeping it a secret from the world. It's how you justified it to God. It's how you justified it to me. As someone that lost whatever faith he had in the divine long ago, I can't speak to what it feels like to break a promise to God. But I know that Annie believes. I know that she prayed to God for salvation in the snow. I know that she thanked God for Frank being in her life. I know that God is important to Tabitha and Catherine Holloway. And I know of Frau's own troubled relationship with the divine cats of her world. For someone to whom religion is important, above and beyond the community it provides, I expect it can be extremely painful to feel like your God has judged you and found you unworthy. I can't have empathy for any situation, even if I do not share her faith. Because at the end of the day, God does manifest in her, in at least one way, judgment of the self. As you're talking about all these different people, all these different roles that Annie has to inhabit, it makes me think of Miguel's mongoose mask mm -hmm. and how he puts it on when he needs to feel brave, when he needs to be the kind of person that Hrau taught him to be in the moment. And that's a literal mask. Yes. Whereas the idea of the different metaphorical masks that not just Annie, but that everybody has to wear, whether we're mm. talking about Raven's journalist mask or whether mm. we're talking about James's doctor mask or mm. whatever version of yourself that you are currently wearing or whatever social situation where you're prescribed role by society or your profession or the needs of circumstance you're right that there's a big overarching conversation to have there in how that affects everybody not just annie but to talk a little bit more about the religious aspect of it something that occurred to me is that this is kind of the counterpoint to that moment that we sort of play off for laughs a little bit at the beginning of Arlington, what with Thomas having that conversation with Bishop Jesse Ferguson, excuse me, Bishop Jebediah Miller, about how the Mennonites don't want to be violent. And we can be on Thomas's side and see how that's frustrating to the goals of the RSA. But even beyond the practical concerns, Bishop Miller annoys us because his beliefs encourage very narrow-minded views, where they care more about the size of a Mennonite's hat and reduce the Wendigo phenomenon down to merely asserting that it was a curse from God. It makes their faith very mockable. And it's beliefs like this that tend to only reinforce my dim view of organized religion. 
But uh, of all of the Christian subtypes that are out there, Quakerism is one of the few religious beliefs that I actually have a measure of respect for. And so therefore, I can feel sympathy for Annie's situation and, and her frustration with having strayed so far from mm. values that she internalized when she was young. And mm. in the meantime, having a great deal of her own trauma being out in the snow and praying to God and asking, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Because that's it, is that it's what's being emphasized isn't a sense of religious divine comeuppance. Annie's not thinking like, God will punish me for mm. such and such. The thing that's emphasized is the principle itself. Mm. And this is kind of what religion ought to be in so many instances, is that it is teaching the fundamental value of mm -hmm. the principle. It's not you want to get your spiritual desserts for doing enough good karma. It's that mm -hmm. you do the thing because there is divinity in the thing itself. Yeah, honestly, that's always been my own frustration with religion in general, mm. is how it feels like more often than not, it becomes a lionization of the invisible man in the sky. Mm. And as a result, a lionization of the institution itself, the church. Yes. Where you have to look to some superior mm -hmm. as like to the person who calls what you do. Exactly. And who tells you how to be. And that if you aren't this way, then you are going to be punished either by mm. God in heaven or by his representatives on earth for yeah. not following the moral strictures that they have decided needs to be a part of society. Mm. When these moral strictures can be arrived upon without religion at all yeah. and without any punishment except for your own judgment of yourself, we mm. can see that any judges herself and that right. god doesn't necessarily come into that yeah and that's i think the best version of that because it is saying that she feels like she is letting the best version of herself down mm. by not living up to this in that she is kind of straying further and further from what she believes is a good and godly path forward I, i'm sort of going in circles here but the ultimate conclusion is what we've already covered this is something that annie laments is a path that she has to walk forward because there are too many things in conflict with one another that means that she has to in order to be true to one set of principles she has to betray another and there isn't necessarily any clear indication of what set of principles is right either no because in this instance in so many ways god is dead mm -hmm. it's up to her and i mean that in both the literal sense that she doesn't mm. get a divine this is what you're doing and her supervisors who gave her this royal decree of this is your duty are now dead and so she has to hold an intangible promise within herself to someone who isn't there and there is no possible feedback on whether she is fulfilling successfully or unsuccessfully that thing except what she defines and judges from within herself. This show just keeps getting better.
It does. It does. I, it, <laughs> I, I love what discussion of New Century allows us to be able to unpack. We go on journeys, some of which we intended to as we review the material, and some of which just end up flowering out of whatever conversation we have. It ends up being something I would just like for a moment, I have to just sit with the stuff that has come out of our mouths and go, huh. <laughs> we came up with that on our own we did that's the end of a short episode sadly but the next will make up for it by being extra long thanks to an extended discussion on the events of chapters 25 and 26 I don't often have music that invokes God for obvious reasons but as a result of the discussion about Annie trying to find her way this song came to mind from an artist I have loved since I heard his big hit, thanks to Batman Forever. So until next time, this is Seal with Love's Divine. Then the rainstorm came over me And I felt my spirit break I had lost all of my belief, you see And realized my mistake But time through a prayer to me And all around me became still I need love, love's divine Please forgive me now I see that I've been blind Give me love, love is what I need to help me know
Cause I need love, love's divine Please forgive me now I see that I've been blind Give me love, love is what I need to help me know my name So starting recording. It says starting recording. Greg is Yay! recording the call. Excellent. Greg, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't hear you, me. sir. The phrase that I came up with during one of our recording sessions, which I quite like, is we go for as long as there is fuel in the tank. Yeah. And... That doesn't mean running on fumes, because that's the whole point. You gotta take care of the steam heart that's within you. You gotta make sure that's finely <laughs> tuned and everything. So sometimes that means just resting up a while and indulging in a trip to the Diamond Bell. This metaphor is getting away from me and going to weird places, so I'm just gonna stop it there. But you take my point. We are doing some of our best material recently, and mm -hmm. I think that Everyone who's listened to it has enjoyed it, so we just let it rock as it's been going. I actually kind of like your metaphor, though, there, from before it started going into weird places, though. Because <laughs> now, all of a sudden, it's like, I'm Harry, trying yes. to repair Steamheart, and yes. you're Jeremy going, okay, how can I assist with all of this? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> this further cements my ongoing uh, thesis thing. Here is my two-hour presentation of why me and Jeremy are simpatico, or at the very least, would totally be besties. PowerPoint one, the chart. <laughs> okay. As you can see behind me. Yeah. Now, now. In all this sudden, audio medium, here is the visual accompaniment. I mean, neither one of us can animate, you know, OSP style. Otherwise, mm. I would totally be like. Is there any possible way that we can do do like an animated version of one of our previous conversations? But no, we don't have those skills. So literally, if we wanted to actually do a bit, you'd need to actually like draw up a chart and then put it on the wall behind you there. Oh, well, I definitely have had like a thousand and one reasons why I've wanted to like actually learn how to draw and mm -hmm. refine that and everything but animating segments of the podcast is definitely a shiny golden crusted reason number 1002 so uh -huh. yeah <laughs> look forward to that in the duration of finishing up a thesis's time when i've got some free time to refine that maybe by then we'll have finished steamheart i mean all of a sudden thinking to myself Maybe you can somehow join the two together and make it a part of your thesis by translating one of our originally on video bits as we're as we're yammering at each other and do like a little stop motion representation of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Absolutely. I I 
it is the end goal, really, of all my interests just coalescing and forming into something. And it will be like the most inane part of our conversation. I love it. I will probably make my avatar at one point a stop-motion skeleton who just has a pair of glasses and a full pile of books next to him, because that feels like that's my sort of a true representation of my professional work at times. So mm. it looked like how uh, Matt McMuscles has various ways of representing the sort of skeleton version of himself. Mm. That is definitely, <laughs> definitely one facet of the many selves of Toby. Anyway, getting back on track to what this is and what this other side of me, which is just you and I around the campfire talking feverishly into a, uh, God, what's the name of, um, I'm a terrible New Century podcast host. What's the name of the audio like recording things? Box the... tubes. Box tubes. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, if you want to replace me and take my position, just write into our PO box, which is 555-screw-you, I'm holding on to the reins as long as I can manage, dash Toby, slash up yours avenue, Pennsylvania. You're getting a lot swearier recently. I don't know how to feel about this. Like, I don't know necessarily that I perceived you as being this innocent little cinnamon roll over here, <laughs> but between this and, like, the moment where you were pretending to be Abigail, just like on her own internal, you know, mm. sweary monologue. I'm just like, holy shit. I, I swears. <laughs> I can <laughs> swears. Yeah, I can swears. <laughs> just like this, you have this idea of me. It's like, oh yeah, well, here, here I go. I'm going to do the dirty coarse language here. Yeah, I gosh dang don't like you, you poop face. <gasps> Am I allowed to say that, Greg? I, I, I don't know. Am I allowed to? Is that okay? Okay. What is the name of the actor that played the Twelfth Doctor? Oh, uh, that would be Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi, um, yes. Yeah. I don't think we ever have to worry about you giving Peter Capaldi a run for his money, as the only other thing that I remember about him, aside from being the Twelfth Doctor, is that clip from a movie that was making the rounds a while back where he was swearing for, like, two full minutes. So, oh, that uh, Malcolm Tucker is this, like, TV character he had on something. I forget what it is. But basically, it's this British comedy about, like, this area of government. I can never really remember what, that he's this politician who just swears up a storm. And there was a headline that was making the rounds before with the slew of uh, government sackings that happened mm -hmm. before the like the bullseye target we all had on our little pentagram just sort of fingers crossing mm -hmm. of uh, Boris stepping down which was Malcolm Tucker fired and he tells uh, Boris to you can look it up if you want <laughs> to hear the language used there because it would absolutely scan <laughs> The thing is, like, because whenever we think of David Tennant, we often think of him in 10th Doctor mode. But mm -hmm. the years have passed on and he's gotten older and I think he's grown a very sort of uh, respectable look from mm -hmm. the years. But part of me was wondering, because we were talking about Donald McTavish's, like, age mm -hmm. and how he might have a slightly older sensibility to him. I feel like David Tennant could play, uh, mm. like, either that or he's kind of like the fusion between Jeremy and Donald. Maybe. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like I was thinking a lot about this when we had actually gotten to that point of the episode and mm. pondering what Donald actually looks like in person, because I know that he was probably described at some point in the mm. book and I just sort of glossed over it a little bit. Um, because, again, I was focusing on other things. I wasn't looking for internal references to Grex mm. and Tobias. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to live that one down, are you? No, no. I, all, all I can do is claim that it's keeping in canon with my personal sensibilities. <laughs> and me, when I sort of got to that point in the book, I just sort of paused. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he thinks that I'm going to talk a lot behind his back, but this time I'm not. Seriously, I'm not going to say a word. See, I can be silent when I want to. So quiet. When you feel like me, I want you to know. 